Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. I have no exciting news this week. I didn't do anything. I've been on holiday. I'm on bugger all. What have you done? I've not done anything. Excellent. Good. Good, good, good. Right. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Our first email tonight was from Andres Salazar, who is promoting his Kickstarter for his comic book, Pariah Missouri. Um, and he emailed into the show and asked, would we object to promoting it? No, we do not object to that, do we? Mm-hmm. So, Andres Saladar's Kickstarter for, what's it called, Pariah Missouri Book 2, started on August 11th. I presume it runs for about a month, as uh, that's how most Kickstarters run for. He sent us a video on YouTube and uh, a preview of the boot, which looks very nice. Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Looks lovely. So uh, if you're interested in that, he's had reviews on Ain't It Cool, Newsarama, Bleeding Cool, I, Fanboy, and others, and has worked for Howard Chicken. So that sounds quite positive. Mm-hmm. So we are happy to give Andres Salaz- Salazar a promotion, <laughs> even if I miss say his name. I do apologise. So get over to Kickstarter and have a look at funding Pariah Missouri Book 2, if you like what you see. So there you go. Our first proper email for tonight is from Chris Franklin. Seven soldiers on. There you go. Seven soldiers email. You were just saying, nobody emailed ever seven soldiers. No, no, I've spent a long time on them. I think two, three. Hours. Oh, right. No. Oh, how many hours <laughs> did I put into it? Yeah. A lot. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Chris says, hello, Leyland. Hello, Christopher. I wasn't sure about this one, I'll be honest. Seven soldiers seem to make no sense to the DCU at large, despite it mining some long-forgotten corners of it. I still have a lot of questions on how this fits into the post-crisis, pre-infinite crisis DCU, but maybe you'll cover that in part two or three. Either way, I'm in. I find they enjoy Morrison's wacky stuff better if you two just describe it to me. I like that. Does that imply that we make sense of it all? Yeah. Is that what he's saying? Mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest with you, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed Seven Soldiers. Yeah. I was genuinely surprised, was surprised by, surprised by uh, how you enjoyed it. Um, I was genuinely surprised by how quick I read it, which normally means I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Unfortunately, real life kept getting in the way that way, didn't it? Yeah. So. Would you read Multiversity now? Yeah, yeah, we'll give Multiversity a go. I'll wait till it's all finished, though. I'm not reading it monthly. So you wait in a year or so, then? Probably, yeah, but I'm <laughs> doing that with Sandman as well, so. Yeah. I'll be 50 before that finishes. Uh, so Justin does indeed look girly. <laughs> everyone's to the mick at me for that yeah. so fair enough I'm not sure how this jives with All-Star Squadron maybe it doesn't did Morrison postulate that the Greg Sanders vigilante was near immortal living in the Old West did he? I, I don't know Okay. I think so All right. I'm pretty sure Kirby's version of Clarion was a witch boy as well in the pages of the original run of the demon I don't recall him ever being a girl 
Morrison said he was, oh, and I'll take his word on it. And then we bow before the god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bow, Morrison, don't. If Morrison says that Clarion was a girl, Clarion was a girl. For the purposes of his story, Clarion was a girl. Yeah. That doesn't quite work as well. Clarion the witch girl, pom pom pom, does it? No. No. Okay. Also, the Golden Age Guardian was linked to the Newsboy Legion. They shared a strip, the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion. Odd that. By Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. <laughs> I love it when Chris is snarky. <laughs> That's funny. And the lead character was literally the legal guardian of the orphaned newsboys in his guise of police officer Jim Harper. Kirby revived the concept via clones of the guardians and the newsboys in his 70s Jimmy Olsen run, who were then revived by Roger Stern and John Friends, John Friends, Ron Friends for the post-crisis Superman annual number two. As you both know, they became supporting players in these Superman titles for years afterwards. Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. Some good questions there that we completely fail to answer because we are quite incompetent, are we not? Michael Peacock has emailed in his headline is Don't Dream It's Over because it isn't. No, it isn't. Just this day, Michael enrolled for his foundation year. So you have to do another year, don't you? Yeah. So you stuck with us for another 50 weeks. <laughs> but I'm still going to do the, the 200 we were going to do. No. Anyway, get your things in for episode 200. That's what we want to say, isn't it? What? Well, issue 200 should just be a clip show. Right, okay. Where people say nice things about <laughs> us. You know, like one of those I Love the 1980s show where they interview celebrities who have clearly yeah. just watched a clip and then talked about it and then cashed the paycheck. Yeah. For the wonderful bit where Peter Kay talked about the magnificence of the... Um, what's that big balloon that you, bop, that you sit on and bounce? When he talked about remembering using that Space as a kid. Things. Something that happened... Space hoppers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something that happened four years before he was born. Clever. So that's what we want. A whole bunch of people who've never listened to the show say nice things about us. Okay. But we're not going to pay them. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'd give you enough free entertainment, quite frankly. Anyway, Michael says, Dear Andrew and Michael, it has been some time since I've fed back to your show. Imagine my shock and surprise to hear the comings and goings of the future of Hey Kids Comics. I guess I'll have to catch up past Hulk Grey to figure out where the show's future stands. The suspense is going to kill me. No, I've just ruined it for you. Since it's been so long since I last checked in, I will not cover close to four months of show content in detail. I'll keep it fairly simple and riddled with bullet points. Dreadful birthday, dear Joker, was a great month of podcasting. Well, thank you, Michael. However, maybe I need to take the revisit approach to the story, but death of the family left a bad taste in my mouth. It just rubbed me as the New 52 death and gloom version of a Joker story. At least they've had gorgeous artwork by Greg Capullo. See, I get that. Yeah. But I think Snyder's done a much better job of bringing the uplift to Batman. Especially with Zero Year. Yeah, Zero Year, he smiled and it actually took place in some daylight. I was describing Zero Year to Adam... And I'm, talk- I'm, I'm talking about it, and as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm going, wow, this sounds really bleak and dark. You know. Yeah, the story matter. Yeah, but th- at the same time, it's very bright. Because mm. the colour panel, the, the colour palette. palette is also very bright as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think Snyder's done a good job of balancing. Both of them have. Yeah, because does Batman, whether you like it or not, Batman is now dark and gritty. That's yeah. just how he's portrayed. And has been portrayed now since, what, 1975? Yeah. I mean, Frank Miller did an awful lot of adding of dark and gritty, but he was quite dark before that, mm-hmm. in many ways. So that's the version that he's writing. But I think he's doing a pretty good balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, I never get that slightly distasteful feel from Batman that I get from some other mm. comics. In the, he, he 
does a really good job with Bruce Wayne as well. Yeah, he's done a really good job of making Bruce a real person. After the 90s, did everything they could to destroy Bruce. Yeah. Scott Snyder's done it. I still think that's going to be one for the ages. I really do. I think um, it'll be mentioned in the same breath as Engelhart and Rogers and Miller and Mazzuccelli and all that stuff. And Zero Year became my favourite Batman origin. I'll read it all back to back. It's better that way. And then I'll, uh, I'll make a decision. Mm. Those 70s shows, or that 70s month, or whatever the hell we called it, was a treat and a half. I breathed a massive sigh of relief that New Gods Issue 7 got a unified pass from the Leyland boys. Out of all of Kirby's DC material from the 70s, the New Gods was my absolute favourite. The interesting thing about Kirby's Fourth World Saga is that it technically has two conclusions, one being the most commonly known one, the Hunger Dogs graphic novel. The less commonly known one is when Jack Kirby contributed material to DC in the mid-80s. The company reprinted the entire New God run with two issues per volume. The last issue of that reprint series contained issue 11 and a double-sized conclusion to the immediate New God story. Let's just say things didn't end up cheerfully for Orion at the end of that battle. So does that not been reprinted in the Jack Kirby omnibuses? No. Oh, right. And they would have kept the one where things were a bit cheerful for him. Yeah, well, the Hunger Dogs in Volume 4. Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. Forever Evil! I still wish to read that storyline based on curiosity, but it does sound like a typical current DC to a T. And does David Finch have blackmail photos of publishing executives and editors in compromising positions to get as much work as he has? <laughs> Even in his better regarded periods, he was a fairly generic artist. Now he's getting worse at being generic. <laughs> he's getting worse at being bad. He's found a way. <laughs> That's quite funny. And he's almost going to destroy any goodwill Wonder Woman's built up around Brian Azzarello, dragging his non-comic writing wife along. I know, is he taking over Wonder Woman? Yeah. All right, okay. Legends, continues Michael. Faults and all, I still hold this in decent regard. In decent regard. <laughs> Not in high regard. It's like Bill Murray saying that Chevy Chase was a medium talent. <laughs> It must generally be the dark side involvement in the storyline, regardless of him just sitting on his duff for the majority of the events. Some quick points the JLA you were puzzled about were the Justice League Detroit, which I think somebody else has emailed in. Like all things from Detroit, it's shabby and should be abandoned. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't say that, lovely people who listen from Detroit. That was the email. I just chucked you under a bus, Michael. Sorry about that. Uh, and Fufa was a cartoon thing. I think we discussed that last week as well. I see, although he also says that Adventures in the Gummy Burst was great. <laughs> uh, who'd have thunk it? Maybe we should try Maybe it. Maybe we should watch Adventures of the Gummy Burst. It's like My Little Pony. We don't know what we're missing out on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I've got a good idea of what I'm missing out on. To wrap things up, because I could go on for pages, if the show has a finite timestamp after all or not, I want to thank you for releasing product. These past few months have been rather difficult for myself, but it's been a joy to sit down for huge chunks of time to listen to you talk about comics, a medium that has been a saving grace for me on a day-to-day basis. Whatever happens next, or until I hear about it, know that you both, Michael and Andrew, have my gratitude for putting in such hard work to make the hard days in mine and others' lives a lot more easy to deal with. You're very welcome, Michael. Thank you for that. Thanks, as always, Michael Peacock. And he's not got a podcast, but he does have a blog at metalmickey100page.blogspot.com, which I checked out and read a couple of entries for, and it's very good. So go and check out Michael's blog. I heartily endorse it. And if he was paying me, I'd endorse it more, (laughs) wouldn't we? Yes. Gene Hendricks emailed in, greetings, Leylands, with a spider question, right? Both greater and lesser. 
I think I'm Leyland the Greater. Okay, then. <laughs> you poggle the last one. Age makes you greater, I guess. I guess, so, yeah. bit creakier, I don't know about greater. I am currently, as per my Demanzo contract, listening to the back catalogues of all the shows on the Two True Freaks Network. Thankfully, that clause wasn't in my contract. <laughs> Because if, if if it was, I'm in serious breach. Yeah. <laughs> and you! <laughs> I should just quit now. Yes! As such, I am most of the way through your feed, enjoying everything so far, but I have a question that I hope you can help me with. I have heard Andrew mention multiple times that the concept of Spider-Man is ruined should he be allowed to age and obtain real-world responsibility. I am of the opinion, and I know I'm in the minority, that comic characters, particularly superheroes, should be allowed to grow and change over the course of time. Yes, even grow too old to continue in their role. Maybe I was spoiled by Wally West, Dick Grayson, and John Byrne's Generation series, but I like the idea of heroes passing on their titles and duties to a younger generation. So, my question. Do you see any scenario where Peter Parker would be allowed to grow up older that you would support? Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl series, which was absolutely fantastic, and I loved every minute of it. And if all these people who can keep banging on about him having to age had actually bought that Spider-Girl comic, it probably would have sold better. Mm. But they didn't. Because, it was cancelled. Yeah, well, it, it was cancelled quite a few times, and Joe yeah. and Q kept going to bat for it, according to Ron Friends. Yeah. So, but it's it's only with Spider-Man. Well, it's not really. See, what he's talking about here, really, what Gene's addressing here, is the American way of doing comics, and in many ways, the American way of doing everything. You yeah. get an origin story, and then you get a bunch of stories, and you, the bunch of stories just continues. There is never an ending or a conclusion. Your television was like that for ages. Yeah. Whereas European comics have a beginning, middle, and an end. Strips end in most European comics. Yeah. So you have a situation with like Lone Wolf and Cub, where the story was massive. But it, but it ending. Yeah. And the money is made from perpetually keeping that series in print, isn't it? Or the digital, as I suppose it would be now. Yeah. That's not the American comics model until it Vertigo came along. Depends on the character, though, doesn't it? Well, there is a certain element of depending on your character. My personal feeling, and I know there are people that disagree with this, but my personal feeling is that at its core, Spider-Man is, yes, it's about power and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. We've got no argument with that. But at its core, what that strip is about is a boy becoming a man. That's the theme of that strip. Peter Parker is thrust into a situation very, very young. He's only 15. Yeah. Where he has to take on adult responsibilities and roles. And he's not ready for it. And that's the theme of Spider-Man for that first 50 or so issues. Mm. And that, to me, is the core theme of the character. There was a brilliant article, I can't for the life of remember where it was, and I stupidly didn't bookmark it, but I think it was Comics Alliance, that basically there was this brilliant article, well written, that basically said, Spider-Man's origin is not Amazing Fantasy 15. Spider-Man's origin is from Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man issue 50. And those 51 comics give you the growth of the character. And if there was ever a logical ending point for the strip, it was the... Spider-Man could have stopped being published with issue 50 and you had everything that you needed to know to tell the character. And everything after that has just been variations on a theme or add-ons or something like that. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. 
Mainly because the minute you do what lots of people suggest, and this I really can't wrap my head around this, and I'm not being insulting, honestly, but I can't wrap my head around people who say, well, you can't leave him at 17 or 18 because that's stupid. So you age him until he gets to about 29, 30 and leave him there. How is it any different freezing him in amber at 30 than 18? I would argue there's much more stories to be told as a, on the cusp of adulthood character. But there's more an audience... Well, that's the problem with the audience, not the strip. Yeah. The point is, Spider-Man should be this character that is inherited by 12-year-olds who read the strip and read about him growing up and going through the same things they're going through. That's another point of the strip. Mm. And then, as adults, we should have moved on to other things. If you take Spider-Man and make him 29 perpetually, then he's no different to Superman, and he's no different to The Flash, and he's no different to Batman. And the things that made him unique have been taken away from him. And I'm not saying anything here that I've not said before, and I'm not saying anything that people haven't disagreed with me before, but people that have disagreed with me have yet to come up with a compelling reason why he has to age. Now, the flip side of that is, to address Gene's question on why I like the Spider-Girl strip so much, is this. Had Marvel said at some point in, say, I don't know, 1980 or whatever, Spider-Man will run for 1,000 issues... It has a finite lifespan. We will tell the entire story of this character and move on. Then I'd be behind it and I'd be okay with it, which is why I was okay with Spider-Girl. Right. Because Spider-Girl's premise was about uh, a Peter Parker that had grown up and aged and had a daughter. Yeah. And I can buy into that premise because, all right, this is this is the story of a man who has gone through his entire life. It's the second chapter yeah. as well. And essentially it was Peter's ending and Mayday's beginning. Yeah. So you got to see how Peter turned out. And I think that was a pretty perfect ending for him. But the minute that he's not on the cusp of adulthood, the minute that that strip is not about what it means to be an adult, the minute that that strip is not about somebody given responsibility beyond his age and him rising to that occasion, it's not Spider-Man anymore. Which is why I think we've had this plethora of other teenage characters that they've had to create to fill in the gap that Spider-Man was filling. Yeah. That's my take but on it. I've, I, I like characters who age. Because I've always liked Invincible, which is very, very similar to Spider-Man. Yeah. And even though we're not reading it monthly, we're reading it yearly in the hardback. Yeah, we're reading hardcovers. I still felt like I've grown up with him, but because he's a little older than me, it was all kind of like what I would go through in the next few years. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm saying. Had they done that with Spider-Man, yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with it. Had they said from the beginning, we will watch this guy go to 35, 40 years of age. Okay, fine. Yeah. But Invincible's a creator-owned project that Robert Kirkman can do anything he wants with. And I, you can, if you go back and read those Spider-Man strips, you can visibly see Stan Lee slamming the brakes on. Yeah. When he realises this is going to be around a lot longer than I thought it was. When he started writing Spider-Man, he didn't think comics were going to be around in five years, mm. let alone 50. And you can see that he's at, at the beginning, he's aging him in real time. Yeah. He's 15 when he gets his powers. He graduates high school two or three years later. And then he's into college. And then you can visibly see Stan slam the brakes on when he's in college because suddenly there is very little forward momentum, mm. which was essentially the argument of that Comics Alliance article that by Amazing Spider-Man 50, you've pretty much said everything you need to say with the character. Yeah. And you can stop the... And everything else that comes after... So he, he, he never becomes Spider-Man again. No, you can... Well, that Amazing Spider-Man 50 ends with him quitting. Yeah. And the end of the issue is him swinging away and it says continued and how. 
and from that you get the idea that he will go on with his life but at that point he's now an adult mm. so the main thrust of the strip has gone away yeah and so by continually telling the same things with him after that point the Aunt May having a oh Peter heart attack and the constant problems with girls and stuff you're doing a disservice to the character because at that point he's now embarked upon his adult path and there is no way an adult Peter Parker who was as brilliant as Peter was depicted would end up still freelancing for the Daily Bugle with a pregnant wife just wouldn't happen Peter would have had an excellent job he would have either been working at Stark Industries, he may still have been Spider-Man on occasion, but he would have been working for Stark or Reed Richards or any number of other places that yeah. could have utilised his brilliance. Well, they've done that recently. Though. Exactly, but they've never done it for any considerable amount of time or done anything with it. He's always ended up back in, freelance photographer of the Daily Bugle, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's only now he's actually running Parker Industries, but that's because of Dr. Octopus. Damn and you, though, yeah. you seriously think that's going to last? It's not, is it? You know, from what I've read, I think Dan Slott is doing a better job of grown-up Peter Parker. And that's just what I've read, so I could be very, very wrong in that. Mm. No, no, he's, he's doing a, an admirable job with it, and it's fun to read, but you know he's just setting him up for a fall. Yeah. And I think it's telling as well. Every extracurricular media adaptation of my William Shatner impression <laughs> of Spider-Man, yeah. what do they focus on? High school yeah. or college. High school or college. He's a young man. Yeah. That's his shtick. But the way it's being retold so many times, because where we are now, Spider-Man is... He's 28. Well, he's an iconic character that no one is going to let go of. Mm. So if they keep retelling the story, telling a story of him in high school or college, they're going to have to keep retelling it. No, they don't. You just update the college situation on the college meal. You Oh, you do what Gene said. You adopt the European philosophy. You cancel the book at 50 and just keep it in perpetual repeat, reprint. That's why it would have happened in Japan, in Japan, in Japanese comics, or French comics. Yeah. It would have ended on the perpetual repeats, reprints. A lot of have sequels, though, even Lone Wolf and yeah. Cobb, like and I'm not saying that ten years down the line you couldn't do a, whatever happened to Spider-Man. You pick up at him at age 30. And yeah. that could be an interesting story. Well, what's he been doing for ten years? But he wouldn't be the same old, same old. He wouldn't still be a freelance photographer of the Daily Bugle, struggling to make ends meet, despite the fact he's Tony Stark-level genius. Yeah. That, to me, is the big problem with current Spider-Man. Well, not so much current, because, like we said, Dan Slot's doing with it, but that, that kind of period in between, you know, the end of the Clone Saga and J. Michael Straczynski taking over. Yeah. It's like, they, they didn't have a clue what to do with him, or what to do with the fact that he was married, and it's just, you end up with a bunch of lacklustre stories. Well, that's also your problem with having such a long-running, ongoing series as well. Yeah. Like, Spider-Man's arguably an anthology series. Yeah, I mean, you could tell Spider-Man stories that aren't about Spider-Man, but about his supporting cast, which is one way they got around it. Yeah. And people say, well, what's the difference between that and Batman? But Batman was an adult when he became Batman. Well, he was 23, 24. Yeah, he gloss over. Yeah, the... but you can, you can hover that character around that mid-range 20-something, early 30s age forever. Yeah. Which is what people have argued with Spider-Man. You get into that age and leave him there forever. But my argument is that once you get him to being an adult, he's not that character anymore. Mm. And it's not a case of he's not Spider-Man anymore. Stop taking me so literally. He's quite clearly still Spider-Man. But the, the thematic core of what the strip is about has gone away. It's like Buffy. Buffy's premise was high school is hell. Right? Yeah. And for its first three seasons, that was the premise of the show. And then they move her off to college, and the show was never as good. 
Hmm. I'm not saying there weren't good episodes. I'm not saying that there weren't interesting things to be done with her once she leaves high school. But the core theme of the show was high school is hell. And once they jettisoned that, the show was never as good. Yeah. And it's the same with Spider-Man. Once he's not on the cusp of adulthood anymore, once he has achieved adulthood, you've just put him in a perpetual state of arrested development instead of progressing him forward. Hmm. There's no way he'd still be a freelance photographer for the Daily Bugle at 26 years of age. But something like that you could only really accomplish with one creative team. Yeah, and one central vision of who the character is, which is why Robert Kirkman's Invincible yeah. is essentially Spider-Man done right. Yeah. Isn't it? So... In, in that case, then, what fault of Spider-Man becoming how he is now? How much of that is Stan Lee's fault? For, for putting the brakes on? Or, or for giving it to someone else? It's, it's, Stan Lee didn't own the character. Marvel owns the character. Yeah. Spider-Man continues to be profitable. Marvel will continue to publish but Spider-Man. Wasn't, wasn't Marvel Stan Lee's at that point? No, Stan's never... This is a common misconception. Stan has never owned... Marvel Comics. Right. All the stuff he did for Marvel is just as much work for hire as Jack Kirby's and Steve Ditko's and all that stuff. Just he managed to negotiate himself a pretty sweet deal. Right. But he doesn't own any of that stuff. He'd probably walk away with Spider-Man and sell it to the highest bidder if he could. Yeah. But he doesn't own him. So him leaving the strip doesn't really matter. Marvel was so weird we'll continue to publish this because it continues to sell. Yeah. And um, you know, so that's essentially Gene's argument. That's the difference between the American publishing system and European and Japanese publishing system. Lone yeah. Wolf and Cub does Hideo whatever his name is own <laughs> Lone Wolf and Cub? What's his name? I don't know. It's um, right next to us. It says Koiki and Kojima. Right. They own Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah. Do they? Or is it the publisher? Well, one of them's dead now. Right, I know. And the other one took over. Yeah, but do they own it? I'm assuming so. Do the publishers not own it? Uh, no. Because either way, they were allowed to bring those strip to it. But it, it's again, this comes back to the different publishing models of um, of American comics and everywhere else. But on the comics. other side, though, what about Judge Dredd? Bring Judge Dredd is approaching an end. He's, is he actually? Yeah, he has aged in real time. Judge Dredd is now in his 70s. How old was he when he started? From a, he was in his early 40s, I think. Oh, okay. So he's now in his mid to late 70s. And apparently, I've not read any recent Judge Dredd strips in a while, but apparently they are addressing his aging right. with a view to at some point maybe ending the strip. Right. So although this story has now been ongoing for 30-odd years, it is still happening in real time. Right, okay. And there is a, a very real possibility at some point the Judge Dredd you are currently watching will cease to be. I'm not saying there will never be a Judge Dredd, because yeah. he's too much of a money spinner, but it may not be Joe Dredd anymore. Which right. is, a set, again, what Gene is addressing here, yeah. that legacy aspect of the character, which DC tried to do, but Didio was just tossed in the face, mm. and said, no, we want the core, iconic versions of the characters, because they're what we want to sell to television. Yeah. And ultimately that's what it's all about. Marvel and DC Comics are now lost leaders for DC Entertainment and Marvel's film division. Hmm. And that's the bottom line. Do you think we answered his question? <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope we answered his question. I don't think it was an odd question, Gene. He wraps up by saying, as a comic reader, I'm sick of being stuck in Act 2 and never allowing the characters to grow and mature. Well, in that case, read Lone Wolf and Cub, read Preacher, read Why the Last Man... What else have people have recommended? Scalped. These are all strips that have beginning, middle, and an end. Unless, like, finite miniseries and that. Mm. you still got the character, but it's still a finite story. Well, Power Man and Iron Fist in the 80s ended with Iron Fist dying. Right, okay. And Power Fist on the run. That strip 
ended. Right. But then people brought Iron Fist back. Fair enough. Because that's another problem with Marvel and DC. You have no control over what writers 10, 15, 20 years down the line are going to do with these characters. Or two years as Damien might be. Yeah, or two years as Damien might be. Somebody could bring back Gwen Stacy tomorrow. Jerry Conway can't do anything about it. Yeah. So... With, but I would imagine with Lone Wolf and Cub, it's the example we keep going back to because it's on the shelf here. But with Lone Wolf and Cub, I can imagine Koike, or Koaioke, I have pronounced it, he's the one who's still alive, isn't he? Kojima's the one that's passed away. Hmm. If he would, I would imagine he has some say over that. Because hasn't he recently done a second volume of Lone Wolf and Cub yeah. with um, Ogami? Ogami's the thing, what's the kid's name? Oh, I've forgotten his name. Anyway, the, the baby. Cub. He's yeah. now grown up, hasn't he? Yeah. So, uh, did, he also, did they not also have any input in the movies as well? Yeah. Right. I don't. I think he did. The Baby Cat series. Yeah. I think he had some input so in the So did they also have sort of input in the 2000 series then? I would have thought. But that's why I was asking you, does he own the character? Because they have done the spin-offs, but... Yeah, does the publisher own the character? Do they need his permission? Oh, no. Because I, I don't know how Japanese publishing works. Japanese publishing copyright may be completely different to the work for hiring American comics. I've no idea. Mm. So... Anyway... Um, anyway, keep up the great work, wraps up Gene. I'll be writing more when I catch up with current episodes. I broke my self-imposed rule of not writing until current with the show for this one. Because you, well, you weren't really addressing a specific episode, though. Mm. So that's well, that's perfectly okay. We'll consider that you didn't break your rule, Gene. That's all right. Gene does the Hammer Strikes and the Quantum Cast both on Two True Freaks. Feel free to check them out. And that conversation lasted significantly longer than I had anticipated. So we'll plug a show and we'll be right back with part one of Nothing But The 90s. Thanks, Mike Bailey. This is a job for Superman. Up, Up and Away, the weekly podcast dedicated to anything and everything Superman. Join me, Mario Benessi, as I explore every aspect of the Man of Steel's history, from comics and movies to TV, radio, and more. It's all here on Up, Up, and Away. For more information, visit upupandawaypodcast.tumblr.com and upupandaway.podomatic.com. get a lot of flack from fans who were there and fans who were not. Yes, the 90s introduced the gimmick cover, die cut, glow in the dark, hologram, but it also introduced more complex narratives over a range of titles. It introduced computer colouring and integrated it more coherently with the art, and it made stories that resonated with readers that are still referenced today. The death of Superman, the Spider-Man clone saga, Batman, Nightfall, Image Comics, the rise of Vertigo, and more are all creations of the 90s. Yes, the speculator market flourished in the 1990s, and yes, Marvel, under new ownership, yet again milked the comics-buying audience for all they were worth, and yes, it gave us women in refrigerators. But decent stories were still produced by decent creators. As with the 60s and the 70s, we hope not to bury the 90s, but to look at it fairly and objectively, the good, the bad, and... The very, very ugly. If the 1970s belonged to Steve Gerber, Jim Sterling and Neil Adams, and the 80s belonged to John Byrne, Frank Miller and Walt Simonson, then the 90s belonged to Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. 
Todd McFarlane first came to the attention of comics readers in the late 1980s when he penciled a well-received run on The Incredible Hulk. The Canadian-born artist was actually on a baseball scholarship when an ankle injury dashed all hopes of his being a big-time ball player. However, despite being self-taught, McFarlane's art swiftly caught the eye of the reading audience and, getting restless on the Hulk, he was given The Amazing Spider-Man. Todd McFarlane brought me back to comics. It has been said that everybody who loves comics at some point walks away for a certain period of time and then returns. I'd quit reading comics in the early 1987. Primarily, I'd grown disenfranchised with Spider-Man, but I dropped all of them. Cool turkey. Feeling that, with college just around the corner, it was a time to move on to more adult pursuits. Yeah, that went well. Also, I hadn't really been enjoying Spider-Man for a while, feeling that the storyline has been constantly interrupted by fill-in stories. As such, I missed The Marriage and Craven's Last Hunt. In spring of 1988, I was browsing the newsagents and I spotted Amazing Spider-Man issue 300 on the rack. For old time's sake, I picked it up and was totally blown away. McFarlane's Spider-Man was dynamic and expressive. He moved in completely unrealistic ways, but the art leapt off the page with its freshness. As this was a newsagent, a quick rummage through the stands also revealed issues 298 and 299. Either looked quite as good. McFarlane is not really an artist who has ever really looked good under other inkers. Least of all an artist like Bob McLeod, a fantastic artist in his own right, but someone who tends to subsume pencils under his inks. I started buying Amazing Spider-Man regularly again. Over the next two years, McFarlane and writer David Michelini would deliver solid Spider-Man stories. They introduced Venom, brought back Mysterio, the Lizard and Hydro-Man, had the Green Goblin and the Hobgoblin clash, and had Spider-Man punch the Hulk into orbit. And all the while, McFarlane redefined what Spider-Man looked like after 20 years of people aping John Romita. Initially, Marvel weren't happy. They didn't like the bigger eyes, the exaggerated poses and the spaghetti webbing. Within a year, though, McFarlane's would be the house style. However, McFarlane was still being forced to draw what others wanted him to. His popularity meant that he could request a move, and what he really wanted to do was control his own stories. However, McFarlane, by his own admission, wasn't a writer. Hell, if it wasn't the sports pages, he wasn't even much of a reader. He didn't really care what was on the page as long as it had lots of line work and looked busy. To be fair, McFarlane did think he would be given a low-selling book or a mini-series, and whilst he had no real desire to keep doing Spider-Man or even add a fourth Spider-Man title to the marketplace, when editor Jim Salakrup offered him a Spider-Man book all to himself, he said he would have been foolish to knock it back. I picked Spider-Man issue one off the stands, and it's one of only two times I have deliberately bought two copies of the same issue, the other being issue number one of the Man of Steel miniseries in 1986. Here I bought the original cover, and later at a comic book store I bought the silver inked one simply because, I admit it, mea culpa, Robert Culp, I thought it was cool. Debuting with two covers, as mentioned, one for the direct market only, Spider-Man issue number one went on sale in June of 1990 with an August cover date. The first cover has been much homaged over the years and shows Spider-Man crouched over, surrounded by webbing and spiders. Whilst not possessing the usual anatomical problems that plagued McFarlane's Spider-Man work, which could be written off as Spider-Man being incredibly agile, the right hand is bent in a peculiar way. Mocking the recent Batman title, Legends of the Dark Knight, the cover also features a banner proclaiming the legend of the Iraq Knight, which makes no sense, and Torment, part one of five. 
The direct sales version is the same, but in silver ink, and the second print is in gold ink. When all was said and done, Spider-Man issue 1 racked up sales of 2 million copies. Today, it's almost worthless and regularly shows up in the 50p bins, but when actually read, is it any good? Before we get there, is the cover any good, young Michael? It is and it's not. Yeah, that's that's essentially my thinking when I look at Todd McFarlane's work. There's, there's, there's the soft spot I have for it that it brought me back to reading Spider-Man. Mm. But at the same time, I'm looking at it going, this isn't really very good, is it? Yeah. And it's become very, very iconic. It has become a very iconic cover. But there's nothing on it. Mm. A lot of lines. And lots of spiders. A lot of lines, a lot of spiders, yeah. Apparently the question mark there... Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man, whenever he did a cover like this, he would put spiders on it. Right. And under there he'd put how many he'd hidden on the cover. But on this one he lost count. Right. And that lovely little nugget of trivia was from the mighty J. David Wheater. He mentioned it on Facebook. And I thought, I'm nicking that for the show! Okay. So thanks, David. So, so why is the question mark still there? Because the question mark he doesn't know how many spiders are on the cover. Oh, right, oh, right, okay. So, that's what it is. Could he not count? Uh, well, he don't read <laughs> by his own admission, so guess, yeah. possibly not. He could probably count the zeros on his paycheck <laughs> yeah. that this issue brought in. But yeah, he's got fat thighs and pointed fingers and, like I say, that hand's... How is that hand twisted, dude? And I, I don't like his head anyway. Um, yeah. I think his head is too long and flat. And he's kind of drawing Spider-Man not with muscular thighs, but with fat thighs. Yeah. And it's... it's Yeah, it's you're, you've hit the nail, bam, square on the head. It is and it isn't. Mm. There's a certain something to McFarlane's art that appeals to me, whilst at the same time I'm looking at it going, this isn't actually very good. To me, the style is both appealing and unappealing. Yeah. His uniqueness makes it appealing, but, oh man, it's pretty bad. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Alright, fair enough. Written, penciled and inked by Todd McFarlane, Torment Part 1 runs thus... Spider-Man stops a mugging and then goes home to gloat about it to Murray Jane. Elsewhere, a mysterious shadowy figure summons the lizard into action. He kills a number of crooks and even an innocent bystander. Spider-Man, leaving the next morning, fails to see the newspaper story about the deaths of these people. That is pretty much it. Yeah. I was going to say, you're waiting for more? Yeah. I could have padded it out, and then he turns a corner, but, <laughs> you know, I kind of didn't see the point. Uh, the opening page of the issue is bizarre in terms of its layout and storytelling, which is weird, because whatever McFarlane's other faults, he always had a pretty good sense of design. The text on the page is telling us all about New York's concrete canyons and how the people on the street wish they could rise above it all. Remember that phrase. It seems odd, therefore, that McFarlane should start with a shot of the sky and the buildings and then pan downwards. It doesn't lend itself to the story, which would surely have flowed better if these panels had been reversed. So we start with the close-up of the people and then move upwards that leads us into the double-page spread of Spider-Man on the next page. Yeah. From a, a storytelling point of view, would that not have been more appropriate? I guess. They talk about the buildings and then the people and then what they want to do, which is what Spider-Man's doing. But then you're suddenly jump-cutting from this pan downwards yeah. to all the people crowded on the floor. You jump in. Back up again. Yeah, well, you rise above it all. <laughs> Am I the only one who thought the dialogue was just so bad? Perfunctory. It, it was... It's like he's trying to be a really 
pretentious poet trying to be funny. I've got exactly that note at the end of it. I read all of Torment. Right. Such is my commitment to Sparkle Motion that uh, I read the whole thing, not just this issue. And it, it is the writing of a very pretentious 16-year-old boy. But he sounds like he's trying to be funny as well. Oh, I didn't get funny from it. I, no, I got that he was trying to be. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, I got that... It read like pretentiousness from someone who could do Spawn. <laughs> and his scene transitions are awfully clunky, aren't they? Yeah. It's like he's going for what Peter David would just do effortlessly, mm. where he would use the dialogue from one scene to catapult us into the next scene, and it yeah. worked. And McFarlane, no, he's just no good just at it. Just this bit here, the rise above it all was clunky from the get-go. Yeah, and he constantly reuses that phrase as if it means something, and and it's and it's you know and it. He says soon it is night, but it starts at night. Yeah. And it's it's like, he's he's not even matching up the dialogue or the captions with his own pictures at this point. Mm. And it, it got a little bit... Well, so I mean, well, alright, we'll start at the beginning. I said in the introduction that McFarlane's Spider-Man brought me back to reading comics. So yeah, we have a soft spot for it, like we said. I mean, the two-page spread on pages two and three... It's very detailed, mm-hmm. much more than a lot of McFarlane's contemporaries, and his pose as Spider-Man's not as exaggerated as normal. But Spider-Man just looks chunky. Yeah. He took him away from the athletic, but still quite slight figure that Spider-Man should have, and made him more beefy, and not in a good way. I didn't, I didn't particularly like it at all. I didn't mind the mugging sequence which I thought was quite good. McFarlane uses the better printing to make excellent use of blacks Mm. on these two pages, which I I thought was really impressive, especially around the panel borders and the shading in the art itself. But this felt much more like a Batman sequence than a Spider-Man sequence. I mean, it works with Spider-Man, and he does have him try and be funny. Badly. Badly, yeah. And again... He's still laughing at his own joke. Yeah. Because no one else is. Yeah, it is It is a bit what's that. And then it, there's another artistic inconsistency. Spider-Man is shown to pinch the barrel, but it's shown to be bent upwards, which yeah. he couldn't do from what he's doing in the art. Pinching it would work fine, because then the bullet can't come out of the barrel. Mm-hmm. So why he felt the need to point it upwards as well... Just to intimidate the guy. I didn't get. I just, I just thought that was a bit silly. And I've got... No problems with McFarlane updating characters' looks and design to bring them more in line with current tastes and trends. You know, you can't argue with his sales success, mm. obviously. But his Peter Parker does kind of vaguely resemble the traditional Peter Parker, if you squint. But Murray Jane looks like she's been recast. Yeah. She looks like a completely different actress has walked in and took the part on. Mm. And one who's not as pretty as John Romita's. Do you also think they look really pudgy? Like yeah. they made out of clay and you can just pudge them. Yeah, his, his art has taken on like, this point where people would say blobby noses and yeah. a little bit play doh noses aren't as bad as Kizada. No, that's true. And I don't, it's like you said at the top of this, I, I can't really make it better than that. It's it's appealing and unappealing at the same time. I, re- I really didn't like his Mary Jane though. No, I don't like his Mary Jane at all at this point. Oh, that's dialogue. Dialogue. Yeah, it's like he's updated Mary Jane's art style by completely drawing a different woman. 
been given eyes that are twice the size of a head. Yeah, that look like they should be pointing off her head at any minute. And, you know, I mean, I get that he's trying to portray it as a a nice, relaxed, funny marriage, but it just it just doesn't come off very well. What, Peter being up his own ass? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Peter being an obnoxious ass. For, well, he's, he's obviously setting him up for the fall that will come later on in the story when he gets the crap beaten out of him by the lizard. Right. But he doesn't do it particularly well. Um, this is quite violent for a book of this time frame. Uh, compared to to what's going on now, it's it's still a little over the top in its grim and gritty. It's not as violent. But isn't it this kind of violence in comics that gave us what we have now in comics? Yes. I, I would argue that, that there is a very straight line that can be drawn between what the boundaries that they were pushing here and, and what's considered acceptable now. The lizard seems to possess none of the intelligence of the of old. He slices people to pieces with his claws, which is heavily implied that he's being controlled by something, hence the constant doop, 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 doop. Yeah. All the way through it. The little ritual scenes that even McFarlane seems to be taking the mick out of. Yeah, but he's not, though, is he? I guess. That's the problem. He's it not, reads like he is, but he's probably not. He's not pointing out the inherent cliches in his own story. If he was in some way doing that, again, like Peter David did, he would occasionally draw attention to the fact that what he was writing was cliched, but I know that, you know that, let's go with it. Yeah. You get the feeling McFarlane thinks he's reinventing the wheel here. You get the impression that he thinks what he's written here is a masterpiece. He's seriously taking the mic yeah. out of the ritual scenes. He's, he thinks he's, he's constructed a, a graphic literature masterpiece. And yeah. I think he's a little bit away from that at this you point. You can kind of read that pretentiousness again because of what he would go to do. Yes. Oh, yes. Spawn <laughs> issue 8 or 9, the one by Dave Sim. The one that's god-awful. Is that the artist, or did he write it? No, Dave Sim wrote it, McFarlane drew it, and it's it's absolutely uh, terrible. Nothing (laughs) dates this book more than Murray Jane and Spider-Man from you referred to as yuppies. Wasn't yuppies more of an 80s term? Well, we're we're still in the cusp of the 80s era, aren't we? It was published in 1990. So you can argue, if a decade doesn't really get its feet under the table and say, say... the second or third year. So the 90s only really become the 90s in 92, 93. The 80s only become the 80s in 83, 84, the 70s, 72, 73, etc. Yeah. It takes a couple of years for a decade to bed in. So I'll, I'll give him a pass for it in terms of when the book was published, but it dates it horribly. Mm. Nowadays. Playing with the themes of above and below often to the detriment of subtlety, McFarlane's first issue as writer-artist is competent. On the one hand, it's supremely influential. As Michael has mentioned, there's a straight line from there to here in terms of its use of violence, the use of large panels, splashes and full-page spreads with as little text as one can get away with. This prefigures the writing-for-the-trade cliché by a good ten years. There's an awful lot here that is now just accepted as standard now. The issue is also well ahead of its time in that nothing happens in this issue because it's the first part of a larger arc. The synopsis that I give at the top, though, is light because the issue's light. McFarlane tries to imbue the issue with the lightness of touch, a playful moment between MJ and Peter to offset the grim violence, but he's not quite there yet as a writer, and it all just feels a little bit forced. 
His use of repeated phrases, doom, 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 rise above it all, isn't a sin, and it helps to at least try and give the issue a thematic destination. The main problem with this issue, though, as far as I can see it, is that McFarlane is drawing what's cool rather than concentrating on telling a coherent story. Of this issue's 22 pages, nine of them are poster pages that he knows full well will sell well on the aftermarket for original art, a market that was starting to boom at this time. And it would see Jim Lee and Rob Liffield net around $40,000 each for pages from X-Force and X-Men 1, respectively. It's not a bad issue in and of itself. It reads okay, it looks fine, but it's not particularly compelling either, Mm. is it? I was confused with the dialogue change halfway through the issue as well. Which one? It's got a narrator until he becomes Spider-Man again, and then he starts narrating it. Yeah, he'll, he'll do that an awful lot throughout the whole of Torment. It'll be an omniscient narrator, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's from Peter's point of view. And you're like, wait a minute, so you're telling me this story? <laughs> yeah. Make your mind up. And it's... That's what I meant by it's competent, but what was the editor doing? Letting... Letting him do whatever the hell he wanted because he knew that this boot would sell. Yeah, because the way you told it, he's only got this book because he complained anyway. Yeah, he's only got this book because he's a whiny crybaby wanting to do his own thing. he's only on Spider-Man because he was complaining that he was on Hulk. Yeah. So, Jim Salicrup put his feet up and did nothing. Yeah. That's basically what you're saying. Alright, okay, there's a text page from McFarlane where he explains how the comic came to be. To his credit, he's quite open and honest which seems to be a McFarlane trait at this time, but also he's very egotistical. You can get that just in the writing. Mm. Jim Salakrup's interjections into McFarlane's narrative are just obnoxious. Yeah. I think I'd rather have egotistic than obnoxious any day of the week. Uh, because of my commitment to the show, as I mentioned, I read The Rest of Torment, just to get a feel for what McFarlane was going for. It's grim, repetitive, and quite an eyesore in places, the art being dark and muddy one minute and gurish the next. It's not a pleasant comic, being obsessed with blood, dismemberment, and death, and McFarlane's scene transitions are painful to read. The story aims for a level of profundity by answering none of the questions posed in the story. A level of pretentiousness normally beaten out of writers by the time they've left school. There's ambiguous and then there's lazy. And I'm, I think that this was lazy. I haven't read this at all since it came out nearly 25 years ago. I didn't think much of it then and it's not aged well. Mm. I think competent is probably the best word we can come up with. You didn't sit there reading this and laughing at it as much as <laughs> something else we're going to cover tonight. No, because I think I, I enjoyed this as bad as it was. Yeah, that's pretty much my take on I it. I like McFarlane as a person, to be honest. Yeah. Because, yeah, he's very egotistical, but I think he's earned that now. Yeah, at that point. At this point, he's allowed to be. Yeah. At this point, I think he being a little more humble yeah. wouldn't have gone amiss. But I've always liked McFarlane. His art style. Yeah. It's just really bad, though. Yeah. There's a, no, you, there was no reason for us to carry on after you said it's really, really good and awful at the same time. Yeah. But he's the best at being bad. Yeah. <laughs> he could have been anything that he wanted yeah. to be. Other artists are better at being bad. <laughs> yeah, but there's, then there's just bad. Okay, take Liffield. Yeah, which we'll be talking about later. Is very, very good at being very, very bad. Yes. But McFarlane is very good whilst being bad. Yeah. It's 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 very hard to put your, yeah. your finger on it, isn't it? I understand what you're saying, and I hope the lovely listeners do too. 
Because this is a 90s comic, it's probably going to be fun with uh, full, sorry, with cool adverts, the Uncanny X-Men cartoon. <laughs> Put a Has t-shirt on for last edition. Yes, well, that's, we'll get to that when we get there. Stop shooting your load. <laughs> uh, but apparently this doesn't... Oh, we've got an entertainment this month, Ad! With hot comics? Oh, yeah, we've not had hot <laughs> comics for many a moon. Apparently, with the release of the new movie... Right. The 50th anniversary celebration and a new drugs storyline and the Stanley Lee movie adaptation, Cap will be hot this year. Right. That didn't quite work out. Stanley was going to do an adaptation. Stanley did movie. the comic book adaptation of the Captain America. Oh, he actually movie. did it. Yes. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, I've never read it, but I've never seen that film, I don't think. Yes, I have, because Darren McGavin's in it. I saw it late night on BBC One Month. the see-through shield or the biker helmet? No, they're the 70s ones. Right. This is the 1991 where he, he has plastic ears. Okay. So he doesn't have to have his ears through his mask. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I caught that movie is going to be so fantastic that Cap's going to be hot. <laughs> right. As opposed to the massive box office bomb that it was. Nice cover to the adaptation by Brent Anderson, though, mm. which we get to see here. And uh, there are no hot Captain America comics, though. There's just some trade paperbacks and other stuff. The Punisher Kingdom Gone is washed I in get blood. It. <laughs> As a, as a Punisher graphic novel. Inked with the artist's blood. Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite cool. Mutants get their own um, their own heading. Is that just mutants in general? Yeah, yeah. Alpha Flight, Captain Britain, New Mutants, Wolverine vs. Hulk, Wolverine vs. Spider-Man, X-Men, Nintendo. Right. Is that X-Men versus Nintendo or a Nintendo video game? I kind of find it funny that the X-Men are, are segregated into mutants and even so in these adverts... <laughs> Well, obviously... Full of wall breaking, that is. Obviously, the creator of this advert was a mutant hater. <laughs> yeah. That's my thinking on the matter. Hits this month. Pick hits. They're not called hot comics. Right. They're called pick hits. Is that even English? <laughs> Isn't that just two random <laughs> words? Uh, aliens Earth War. The Aliens Evade Earth. Full colour. Nuke. <laughs> Alien uh, Earth War. The yeah. aliens, <laughs> aliens Earth War was pretty good, but I do like that description. The Aliens Invade Earth. Really. <laughs> Alien Nation, based on the hit Fox TV series. Nice art! <laughs> it actually says... Only nice. Yeah. That's the kind of thing your mum says. <laughs> We're not going to put mediocre art. <laughs> Black Panther, all new 64 page. Violent! <laughs> Deluxe series, because violent was one of the keywords of the 90s. Give Me Liberty, gripping futuristic thriller by Frank Miller. Hard-boiled intro, a cyborg killer. Extremely violent. Wow, that's pretty cool. Extremely. Not just violent. (laughs) Not just a hot, new, violent comic, but extremely violent. Justice League Quarterly Issue 1, all-new 80-page series, intro the new team. Apparently it wasn't violent. Nomad number one, Cap's former partner takes on drug lords. Isn't the Punisher taking on drug lords in his graphic novel Kingdom Gone? Everyone's taking on drug lords. There was also a movie adaptation for the Punisher's movie, which was also going to be hot this right. year. Okay. And tanked. <laughs> Didn't have much luck, did they? Uh, Spider-Man Game Boy, all new arcade-style action in a Game Boy game. Shocked by that news. Thanos Quest 1 and 2 Deluxe Silver Surfer Time by Jim Sterling, which is actually quite good. Yeah. Against all odds, Twilight Zone by Harlan Ellison and Neil Adams, X-Men Prisoner of Love, new deluxe series, great art by Gwise, great art, not just nice art. Mm. And everything else is just... Uh, oh, Spider-Man has the spirits of the earth, an eerie new 50-page hardcover, brilliantly painted graphic novel by Charles Bess. Spider and Mary Jane travel to Scotland for a honeymoon, which, you know, I don't think I've ever read. Charles Bess is good. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read that. And there's, you know, a couple of t-shirts and 
Craven posters because of Craven's last hunt and stuff. Um, bullpen bulletins this week. Dan Lee was in a movie called Into Thin Air, which was renamed Ambulance and starred Eric Roberts. He says it's going to be an absolutely fantastic movie. I've seen it. Is it's, it not? it's not absolutely fantastic. No, bullpen bulletins page talks about loads of stuff. And arachnophobia came out of the cinemas, which I actually remember quite enjoying. Arachnophobia. It's good advertising too. Yeah, in a Spider-Man comic, it's very apt. Yeah. I think you will agree. The other big comic book creator of the time, Rob Liffield, was 21 and a big comics and Star Wars fan at this time. Since starting his professional career, he'd picked up a few covers and posters at DC, but nothing substantial due to his shaky anatomy and uncoordinated storytelling. His unique style, though, caught editor Bob Harass's eye, and after a few fill-in issues on various X-books, Liefeld was offered New Mutants, then being written by Louise Simonson. After Harass wanted a leader for the team to replace the recently deceased Professor X, Liefeld came up with a number of different designs, and one in particular, a half-cyborg named Cable, was chosen out of the lot. Harass wanted to call him Quentin, Simonson's script called him Commander X. Liefeld demanded he be called Cable, or he walked. Harass backed his artist. This would become a recurring theme. New Moon's issue 87, which introduced Cable, was a sales hot potato, cementing Liefeld as a superstar. However, Simonson was frustrated. It became readily apparent to her that Liefeld wasn't interested in stories or sequential narrative, and his inconsistent storytelling was starting to irk Simonson, as it became more and more apparent he was only interested in drawing posed pages and poster images that he could sell on the after-sales original art market. Simonson appealed to Harass. Harass not only backed his artist, but kept pulling the rug out from under Simonson, changing the script at the last minute to undermine the writer, and saying that he tried to get in touch with her, but uh, she just wasn't home. Simonson, seeing which way the wind was blowing, quit Marvel after ten years. With Simonson gone, Liefeld pitched for the cancellation of New Mutants. After all, with nearly 100 issues, reasoned Liefeld, how much longer could they be called New A new title would sell, he promised. Cancelling a top-selling title to relaunch with a new number one went against everything Marvel knew about marketing comic books, but so persuasive was Liefeld's arguments, Marvel went along with it. Also, at this time, someone in Marvel's sales department had noticed that bagged copies of Sale magazine sold better than regular editions, and had tried the trick with a variant of Spider-Man issue one, but Liefeld's new title, X-Force, would take things one step further. The comic would be of a higher price and be polybagged with one of five trading cards unavailable anywhere else. It would sell over four million copies, blowing Spider-Man issue one out of the water. X-Force number one, which I bought in the 50p bins, was cover dated August 1991 and double-sized. Opening this issue for the first time ever is Michael's College Fund. (laughs) Reveals there to be two, count them, Two trading cards. We actually got lucky though. We only did. one of five. Yeah, well, the other one's an ad. Oh, oh, isn't oh. it? Well, who did uh, get? They're both free. I'll mention this in a minute. They're both free. Something that the bag feels the need to point out twice. <laughs> yeah. For some reason. The word free not being big enough the first time. Granted, one of them is an advert for a range of overpriced t-shirts that bore the trading card of your choice on the chest. Apparently, and this is a quote, the laser image technology transfer system makes the colour and clarity on these shirts extra special. See what they did there? Worth $18 in 1991 of anybody's money. The card itself, which is here, listen to that lovely listener, it's not in the bag. 
The card itself is of Shatterstar, which is also his real name. Right. Mm. He, he That's was... what he was christened. <laughs> Shatterstar. That's on his birth certificate. Yeah. Shatterstar. Yeah. Can you imagine mum seeing <laughs> that when dad comes home and then, you called him Shatterstar? What was wrong with Robert? <laughs> and the dad was like, oh, I thought Shatterstar was cool. Get back. Change it. I think that's how Liffield's first uh, marriage ended up. <laughs> Called his son Shatterstar. <laughs> um, as I said, it's, he ain't got time for aliases, obviously. He stands on the card, legs akimbo, wielding a sword in each hand, boots that don't fit, a single shoulder pad and a boxer's headguard. He has his hair in an implausibly long top knot and he carries a violin around his neck. <laughs> At least it looks like a violin, doesn't it? I have no idea what that is. He's also waving swords around. Swords are big in the 90s. Yeah. Preferably one in each hand. Well, just like that. And shoulders big in the 90s. Shoulder pads apparently are big in the 90s as well. What do you think of that trading card? Uh, it's it's not all that bad because I can't really see it. Yeah, it's too small to even give a toss about it. It's, so. it's too small for it to be that bad. So let's move on to the wraparound cover. Shatterstar is here on the cover in pretty much the same pose. Yeah. As he is on the, the trading card. And the rest of the issue... And the rest of the issue, pretty much. I had never read so much as a single issue of X-Force before I did this. Mm. So I had to look these up. Um, They are Cannonball, who I did know because he was in the New Mutants, but he seems to have adopted some some goggles. Right. Some biker's goggles. He also looks like somebody else, then. He looks a bit like Longshot, but uh, I I don't know. I've not read Longshot. Uh, Warpath looks like a Native American. He looks like the guy in... Giant size X-Men. He does. He did look like... What was his name? Thunderbird? Yeah. But he got killed, didn't he? Maybe it's his brother. Maybe yeah. he got better. Yeah, yeah. That's entirely possible in the X-Men books, isn't it? Feral has huge hair and not in an 80s way. Domino seems to have a stump where her hand should be. I knew Domino. Did you? Is she still around, yeah? She is. Yes. She's in um, something we read. X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Boom Boom wears pink and has green sunglasses that are larger than her head. And not as and worse than her name. Yeah, um, I don't know how, how they stay on her head, to be honest with you. The cover itself is dominated by Cable, who is so wrong proportionally <laughs> that <laughs> it's actually laughable. I always thought it was a joke that Liffield didn't draw feet. But he seems to adhere to that stereotype here. And Cable's hands are so tiny! Yeah. They barely register his hands. His head also looks like it's been shrunken by the tribes in Peru. <laughs> and it's amateurish doesn't even begin to cover it. Have I read a Liffield comic before this? We must have, yeah. Which one? I d- I've read another X-Force one. Oh, oh, yeah. Was it New Mutants? It was the first Deadpool one because it's in the trade paper. Right, okay. And I think that's pretty much it. I, I don't... I, 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 I honestly don't remember if I've read a Rob Liffield comic before I read this. Do you not just look up those ten bad Rob Liffield panel articles, of which I think there are five of? <laughs> and they're all different panels! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, genius! I wish I'd known about that before we record. Do you ever get the blues and you just sit there looking at Rob Liffield comics? No, because the guy made a... 
ton of money out of them. So who's laughing now? Well, isn't he a really nice guy until he had his recent meltdown? I'm sure he's a lovely fella. That's another thing. We're not being personal here. I'm just, I just can't remember if I, I ever read. I mean, the guy does Ed work for Levi's, doesn't he? He did a Levi's model. <laughs> he, wo- he works. He doesn't work for, for Levi's. I think he, he did. A Levi's commercial at some point. I've seen you not get paid in Levi's. I don't either. I presume they could afford to buy Levi's. I don't know. Anyway, should we? Should we? Having um, discussed the cover, <laughs> I think it's just so bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, people have tried to say to me, you know, there's a lot of energy in Liffield's work, and yeah, but it doesn't excuse it to yeah, all. There's definitely energy, but yeah. at least Kirby was decent. Mm. Do not ever. Compare Liffield to Kirby <laughs> ever again. Never do that again. A Force to be Reckoned With was written by Rob Liffield, who gets top billing with Fabian Nietzsche. The X Force team attack an Antarctic base home to the Mutant Liberation Front. They are no match for X Force, but Strife, the leader, teleports away. At the scene of the battle, S.H.I.E.L.D. commander George Bridge recognises the tech as being Cables and reports to Fury, who orders him to bring Cable down by any means necessary. There's also a subplot about some bloke called Gideon, who alongside Sunspot is taken hostage at the World Trade Center by Black Tom. At least Spider-Man was a single-sized issue. Yeah. What's this excuse? Double. This is a double-sized issue, and that's the synopsis. Yeah, it's all fight. It's just posters. Yeah, um... Well, my first question, I don't know anything about the New Mutants. I've never read New Mutants. I've never read X-Force before or since. I have no intention of reading anymore. How does Cable see? One eye has no iris. Because that's his laser eye. And the other is badly scarred. And it glows all the time. The one eye that has no iris glows all the time. So, uh, uh, well, is he blind? Well, he's always frowning. He is always <laughs> frowning. He's the Patrick McGowan of the X-Men. It's like when, you, when, you per- when you're younger and your parents tell you, oh, don't frown like that, your face will stick. Yeah, yours His, his face stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, 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 okay. The two-page spread that follows page one, because... Pages two and three tend to do that. It's so replete with errors, it's hard to know where to start. Warhawk's leg just disappears. Yeah. I've no idea where that's gone. And um, Cable's lower body is much tinier than his upper body. And Shatterstar seems to be simultaneously falling and propelling themselves forward at the same time. Yeah. So I, I I have no idea how in the hell that works with the laws of physics. And if he swings his sword from that angle, he's going to cut Feral's leg off. And Warpath looks like he's three times the size of the people that he's fighting. He also looks like he's he's so much bigger than Cable because aren't they supposed to be on the same level? Uh, yeah. I don't know because if you have his arm looks it's, like it's behind yeah. Cable's leg, but at the same time because so he looks like he should be in front of Cable. Yeah. But his arm is then behind Cable, yeah. you've got this weird optical illusion going on with your brain, haven't you? Where you're yeah. looking at it going, what? And look at that guy's little head, though. Yeah. It's the size of Warpath's crotch. It's the size of one of Warpath's nads. Yeah. Is what we're saying. I, just, um, I didn't want to be any negative. I really didn't. 
I originally read the Mutant Liberation Front as MILF. Yes, so did I. Which made this issue a lot more enjoyable when they talked about taking out the MILFs and destroying the MILFs. <laughs> that did give me an unintentional chuckle. Uh, forearm, ha- forearm has forearms. <laughs> yes. Which was genius <laughs> on a level that I could not hope. It's because Cable's Chuck got a different me. gun in every panel. Yeah. But look at that panel. It's, uh, look at the size of six. his thighs. Yeah, but look at, but look at his hands. Tiny hands. Yeah, those those thighs are 20, size, 20 times the But he's got hands. tiny hands. You know what that says about him, don't you? He can hold big guns. <laughs> yes, because he's not got a big something else. Because <laughs> he's got tiny, tiny hands. Uh, bottom of page four, just to go back a bit, Feral leaps up, and we get an under-the-skirt shot that clearly shows she is knowing, knowing, wearing no underwear. Yeah. Comics code asleep at the wheel on this one? I thought she was kind of like T-Grex. Oh, you, you think there's a thong going on there? Oh. Why is a tail coming out of her left butt cheek instead of the bottom of her spine? <laughs> you got nothing. No, you got nothing on that one. All right. Speaking of the Comics Code Authority, Shatterstar cuts somebody's arm off on panel, an everyday occurrence today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grant you, but quite shocking in a code-approved book back in 1991. It's so bad, though. Right. I didn't think it's that the... was as bad a panel as some of the others. It's the guy's left arm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he slices down, and it. And it flies towards us, the reader. Yeah. How's that work then, Ted? It's 3D. Liffield's trying to do 3D. He was ahead of his time, dude. Yeah. He was He was completely he was ahead, ahead of, of his something. time. He was, yeah, yeah, ahead of us in the pay scale. Yeah, yeah. Let's be brutally honest. Better to lose a few fingers to save the hand, says Strife, the bad guy, who has an implausible headdress, a massive chest, <laughs> and spiky shoulder pads. I can't wrap my head around that. If a hand loses all its fingers, it's pretty useless as a hand. Yeah. So surely it would have been better to say something like, better to lose the hand to save the entire arm or something. But better to lose the fingers to save the hand? Maybe Liffield thought it was cool. Well, Liffield didn't do the dialogue. Fabian Nietzsche did the dialogue. Oh, did it? Yeah. Fabian Nietzsche said basically all he was required to do was put dialogue on the page. Right. Basically, Rob Liffield drew whatever the hell he wanted to do. So when it says... And Fabian Nietzsche had to come along and make sense right, of it. Right, okay. <laughs> if you actually read the credits, it says, Rob Liffield everything. Yeah. But... And then there's this big long list of things that Rob Liffield didn't do. So he didn't do the words, he didn't do the letters, he didn't do the colouring, and he didn't do the editing. Yeah. So when it says everything... Basically, it means it drew a bunch of pretty pictures and handed them in. Yeah. And if they dropped them and put them in in any order, <laughs> it probably would have made no difference to the book. <laughs> I do like that you have to turn um, pages 15 and 14 around. He's done a, like a, a widescreen effect. We have to turn the page on its side. Yeah. I like that. I thought that was that was quite an the, interesting. The costume's still really bad. Though. Oh yeah, yeah. The, you can cut yourself on the paper. It's so edgy. Yeah, it's it's just ridiculously stupid. Uh, I didn't understand why page twenty was printed smaller than all the rest. I didn't. Lots more of a panel border around that one than say that one. Yeah, maybe because he's trying to do coming out of the panel. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe that was just a printing error. I uh, I don't know. Uh, boom boom. 
has a line of dialogue in this issue that pretty much sums up the comic and, by extension, Liffield's approach to comics. Ain't there a little bit more to it than winning and losing? What kind of fashion statement we making? She asks, which, you know, I know the line was written by Nietzsche. And I want to give him credit that it's a moment of intentional reflexive wit. But it seems to imply that the content of the book's irrelevant. The story is grist to the mill of the art. And as long as the characters look good, strike a pose, and are colourfully rendered, what they do and say doesn't matter. Mm. That's what I got from that line. Yeah. And that panel there at the bottom of the page shows how kind of... Um, Limited his artwork is. Yeah, I, I, I had another word. But I, I know, I know what you're saying. He's basically just drawn square blocks how, how, and said that they're buildings. Yeah, he, he doesn't want to do storytelling. I'll, t- I'll draw buildings. Yeah, it's, it's like he doesn't want to want to show backgrounds. He just wants the action, and you can tell that a lot of it. It's either snow or really, really, really big rooms with walls covered by computers. <laughs> oh, that's just it. Yeah. It's just action with very limited backgrounds or surroundings. Because that's not what he was interested in drawing. It's like when you're a kid and you got colouring books and you only want to colour in... like The, the heroes. Yeah, you only want to colour in action, man. You don't give a toss about what's going on yeah. in the background. Yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I've caught feels some slack with his depictions of the team members in MILF. Uh, honestly, we have, really. <laughs> MILF, you never actually see. No, you just see... Um, the legs flying off panels. Yeah, pretty much. The, the mutants in colourful costumes. So, alright, fair enough. But Commander George Bridge of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. On page 28. He is supposed to be a normal, everyday human being. Right. And he's an absolutely god-awful, abysmal, atrocious piece of artwork to be appearing from a professional artist in a professional comic book. Yeah. I know all the usual criticisms of Liffield, and they do apply, but the one I can't wrap my head around, why everybody has a fat crotch with lines shooting out of it. (laughs) He does this with everybody, men and women. There's a woman, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a bloke. I don't know. But anyway, he does it with everybody. What's the crack with that? Really, really, really tight pants. What, because of the thighs? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, and why does nobody have any eyeballs? And the, the mouths are really small as well. <laughs> yeah, they're like squirrels. And, oh. Uh, that pa- oh, where he's, The panel of cable where he's crouching down fixing And he's something. leaning backwards, but he's holding himself up and... Well, if you actually look at the length of his legs, the the leg in the background would be much longer than the leg in the foreground. And his thighs are different on both legs. Yeah. it's There is no consistency at all between panels of his own art. Like Michael pointed out, he has a different gun <laughs> in his hands every time you see him. It's... It's garishly coloured. It's amateurish in its art it's slim in story but lovely listener it's not utterly terrible I mean (laughs) that is like saying the dump I took this morning (laughs) smells better than the dump I took last night but it's not terrible believe it or not unlike Liam McFarlane where I, I can at least see why they attracted the following they did even when I don't like it myself I cannot understand what people saw in this 
that made it so popular. It was so far away from my tastes in 1991, and it's even further away today. I mean, the art's not helped by the colouring, which hurt your eyes Yeah, to look at it. It really did. The complaint that Lee Feld was drawing pages simply to sell on the aftermarket applies more to this even than to Spider-Man issue 1, with 16 pages of this comic being poster shots. To give it its due, though, its relatively simple plot and plain character introductions make it a marked contrast to the overly convoluted X-Men stories of recent vintage. But there's nothing at all in this hackneyed collection of cliches to make me come back for more. We've seen the plucky band of rebels hunted by a government that doesn't understand them before. We've seen the secret underground conglomerate of bad guys before. There is also what would become the Image Comics template of the characters not having a secret ID or even a life outside of what they do. And I don't know if that's a Liffieldism or not, but it seems to me it's a limitation of the writer's ability. He's not capable of scripting real people in real situations, doing real things, and then they go off and have action and adventure. So it's all action and adventure. And again, ahead of its time, a lot of DC comics nowadays, they don't have secret identities anymore. Because mm. that's hard to write for. So there's nothing for us as a, an audience member to latch onto. And Marvel, I'm just thinking about that. Marvel's the same. There it's, is no Steve Rogers anymore, is it? He's Captain America all well, the time. It's because the, they, they turned them into soldiers rather than heroes. Mm. And it's, in many ways, the way into the stories was the normal human stuff. And by removing that, it's like you said, it's just wall-to-wall action. Yeah. Signifying nothing. What did you think of it? He says as he pushes it back into his poly bag. I just couldn't get into it. I mocked everything from the story to the art. The art's bad and the story's just laughable. We, we, it's just action. Oh, we hate these guys, but we won't tell you why, just roll yeah, with it. there is and an awful lot of that. And say, oh my god, I'm so scared of these people, we have to hunt them down. <laughs> really? Really? There is an awful lot of mystery yeah. built into the story that you know is there, because you just can't be arsed explaining it. Yeah. And it's... it's the, the action starts on the second page. You don't know who they are, or why they're fighting the people... So, even though I didn't think he was utterly awful, but far from good, even though I didn't think that, you thought it was utterly awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I put it back in the bag and I'll get it back out. There's a collection of cable guides at the back, which, <laughs> cable guides, that was funny. <laughs> I like that. Uh, they're actually quite wittily written. Yeah. Because I presume Fabian Nietzsche did them. <laughs> uh, the Bullpen Bulletins page is a collection of three Schumer panel strips that used to be on the page in ones at this time. Mike Higgins has a clear tattoo that says legalised pot. The Comics Code Authority really were asleep at the wheel for this one. <laughs> and I've just made the mistake of opening it on the last page. That is god-awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one is, because look at his right leg. It's, it's dreadful. It's, it's, wait a minute. The patch on his knee that is nearer to us is bigger than the one that's far away. Oh, I, I give it. I absolutely... <laughs> I can't look at this anymore. Uh, Adverts, there's an entertainment this month column in this one. It's all about the X-Men. 
Excalibur issue 42 is by Alan Davis. Spider-Man, no hyphen, 15 is X-Men parody. Uncanny X-Men 281, new team. X-Factor 71, new team. X-Force number one, gold cover. X-Force 2 and 3 versus Juggernaut. And then blah, blah, lots of other stuff. Giant-sized X-Men 1 reprint for $3.95. You can get it for a quid now. Jim Lee poster book, original X-Men 1, blah, blah, trading cards, blah, blah. Uh, ETM pick hits, again with the pick hits. Which is just two random words as far as Hot I'm comics concerned. Hasn't grown Hot yet. comics hasn't arrived yet, no. Adventures of Captain America 1 and 2, painted deluxe by Kevin Maguire. Batman Holy Terror, very controversial anti-religion story by Denny O'Neill. Pretty sure Denny O'Neill didn't write that. Pretty sure that was Alan Brennett. Best Marvel stories ever, the best Marvel stories in history. Really? Gee. Marvel cards, Marvel swimsuit special, a spank mag by any other name. Uh, Infinite Thanos Quest is still in, so this can't be this much long after Spider-Man number one. It's pretty much the same answer. It's one of those really, really kind of awkward spank mags, though. Yeah. Oh God, why am I doing this over lines on a page? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think that was as awful as you did. Yeah, fair enough. But it was still pretty bad. <laughs> Maybe you didn't think it was as bad because you just didn't care. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely possible I just didn't care enough to uh, think it was bad. Our third and final book tonight, Jim Lee, in contrast to McFarlane and Liefeld, was a company man who had paid his dues. He made his debut working on Alpha Flight with Wilts Potassio, and in contrast to the foul-mouthed, opinionated Canadian McFarlane, Lee was polite and contrite. When he started working on Alpha Flight, editor Carl Potts gave both men a copy of the Five C's of Cinematography to give them both a better background in lighting and anatomy and emphasise storytelling fundamentals. Both men then graduated to The Punisher, Potassio on the regular book and Lee on the high-end direct sales only title Punisher War Journal. When a spot opened on Uncanny X-Men, Lee was there to occupy it and sales, like with McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man, went through the roof. With Marvel's new owners strip-mining Marvel for all it was worth, adding more and more extravagant covers to the marketplace, the expansion of the Spider-Man line and the resultant sales success achieved by McFarlane immediately led to thoughts of expanding the X-Men line. After all, Spider-Man was technically the fifth Spider-Man comic, if one counted reprint book Marvel Tales, so adding the fifth X-Men book was a slam dunk, at least so thought editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. Bob Harass, editor of the X-Men books, thought it may be overkill, but saw it as an opportunity to move writer Chris Clermont off the stage. Harris had a reputation of supporting the best-selling artist over even the long-time writers, and he was tiring of Clermont's dangling plot lines and offbeat storylines. After 16 years writing Uncanny X-Men and assorted spin-off titles and sister titles, Clermont was excluded from a meeting with Harass, Jim Lee, Wills Potassio and Rob Liefeld. At this meeting, the new X-Men book would be proposed, and Clermont was told he would provide dialogue for the books only. Scripting and art on Uncanny would be by Potasio, and Lee would handle the new book. Clermont tried to make this work, but it proved untenable when Lee's art would arrive infrequently. Harass and Clermont's relationship would deteriorate rapidly, and Clermont and Harass agreed that Clermont be allowed to write the first three issues of X-Men, which was essentially his severance pay. Clermont quit halfway through Uncanny X-Men issue 279. There was no farewell, no text piece, no thank you in the letters page. After taking the X-Men from failed concept to best-selling comic on the face of the planet, Chris Clermont was quietly shown the door. 
His swan song began in X-Men issue 1, which boasted four interlocking Jim Lee covers and was cover dated October 1991. A special fifth cover featured all of the covers in a fold-out and ultimately sold nearly 8 million copies, doubling X-Force's sales. This is the version that I have here, which I picked up from the 50p bin just a few weeks ago when I knew that we would be covering this on the show. The gatefold cover cost nearly $4 originally and features Magneto encased in a bubble of purest black as Cyclops lets loose with an optic eye blast with Wolverine and Iceman moving in for the kill. Bringing up the rear, Psylocke in a thong-type outfit that will cut her in half should she bend over, Rogue, Colossus and Gambit. Further to the left, the Beast moves in, as does Storm, Archangel, Jean Grey and Professor X. It takes Liffield's X-Force cover and turns it up to 11. Every single 90s cliché is present in this image, except swords and big guns. Uh, we'll cover them now, just to get them out of the way so we don't have to keep mentioning them. Overly muscled men, check. Even Professor X looks like he spends four days in the gym, but Magneto is especially buff for a man in his 60s. Pouches, check. Cyclops has them around his thighs. Gritted teeth, check. Every character on this cover except those that are screaming. Speaking of which, open mouth screams, check. Trench coats, check. Gambit wears one and Rogue has half a one. Implausible accoutrements, check. Rogue has a belt that is far too big for her. The minute she stands up, that's going to fall off. It made no sense. The wet look hurdo, check. Step forward, Cyclops, Gambit, Psylocke, and even the Beast yeah. has got a little bit of product in his hair. Which I thought was quite impressive. What did you think of that lovely wraparound cover? I like it. It's alright, isn't it? Yeah, except for Cyclops, not Cy- uh, Magneto. He looks a little bit out of place, but as his own cover, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, alright, I'll give you that. It's certainly the most interesting of the three covers. Yeah. And um, proportionally and anatomically and dramatically, it's probably the best of the three, but no. I mean, there are still issues. Like, Wolverine's biceps are phenomenally large, but... Okay, we'll give it a pass. Rubicon was co-plotted, written and drawn by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. Scott Williams inked it. When Magneto's asteroid home, Asteroid M, is invaded, he destroys the spaceship of the invading astronauts, only to learn they are mutants that are requesting asylum. Magneto demurs, but the invaders demand to know how Magneto can turn his back on them in this, their greatest hour of need. Colonel Nick Fury contacts Professor Xavier to inform him of this development, and that Asteroid M is in orbit above Moscow, something not sitting well with the Soviet Union. Xavier splits the X-Men into two teams, and they move in on Magneto, who has taken to the Earth. He stands in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, using his magnetic powers to bring to the surface a Russian submarine he sank in a recent confrontation. Wolverine asks if he's about to give the serviceman he killed a decent burial, and a fight breaks out between Magneto and the X-Men. Magneto makes pretty short work of them, and having got what he came for, the nuclear missile still in the down sub, he takes his leave. Rogue tries to talk him out of whatever his plan is, but she's caught between Magneto and a Soviet airstrike, and this solidifies Magneto's position. Magneto retreats to Asteroid M whilst the X-Men search for Rogue. Xavier locates her in a hospital in Genosha, recently a slave colony for mutants but now a free country. However, Magneto's men arrive, killing all in Rogue's hospital room. They want Rogue to join them in their quest, mutant supremacy. Apparently they are working for Magneto and although he is appalled by the reckless violence, he interrupts the battle in progress to state that he will punish these people as he sees fit. 
for Magneto is establishing a new world order. No longer will he stand by as humanity kills for no more reason than the colour of a man's skin or that he worships the wrong deity. No longer will he stand by and let Homo Superior suffer hate and prejudice simply for being different. From this day forth, Asteroid M will be a sanctuary, a sovereign world for all mutant kind. All, even the X-Men, will be welcome, but be warned, people of Earth. Harm performed against mutant is harm against Magneto, and any action will be returned in kind. Oh, well, that was a much better synopsis than we had for the previous two issues. Mm-hmm. Hell of a lot goes on in this comic, isn't it? very, very dense, yeah. It's exceptionally dense. Excellent science fiction opening. Mm. Lee's command of anatomy and panel progression is better than either McFarlane or Liffield. Although McFarlane may have a, the edge in design sense. Yeah. What do you think? I, I don't know. I thought the artwork in this was great. I, Lee was my favourite of all three of them. Was he? He's, he's not quite Jim Lee yet. Do you know? Because I don't see any difference. I don't see any difference between this and Hush. I think Hush is better. Do you? Yeah. Why? I don't know. It's The colouring doesn't help it for a start. But this is more... He's not as less detailed as he is now. Mm. But he's more Ed McGuinnessy. Now? No, in this. Right. But then he would become even more detailed with, say, Hush. Because it's all in his scratches, really. Yeah. Jim Lee's all about his scratching. But now it's just more scratches, less detail, I guess. Right. Where this is a mix between his Hush work and Ed McGuinness. Right. So. Okay, I didn't dislike it. I actually thought this opening was really impressive. Um, it's I love the way it goes from lots of little panels on page one to a big two-page spread on page two. Essentially, what McFarlane did, but you actually felt you were getting a story here. Yeah, it opens with a bang and then just carries on. Mm. I mean, there's only really one problem with this issue, which I'll mention when we get to it. Um, Magneto's purple leotard with a big M on it is god awful. Yeah. Isn't it? That's absolutely dreadful costume. Was that his last costume? I think that was his costume he wore when he was a good guy. Right. It's, it's terrible. No wonder he went bad again. Yeah, if he had to wear that all the time. <laughs> it's not very impressive. Uh, my problem, as I mentioned earlier on, the Danger Room introduction scene goes on for 11 pages. And it's fun, and it introduces all the characters well... But it's far too long. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, we've all seen Danger Room scenes before. And I, you know, I acknowledge that 8 million people bought this. So maybe they hadn't read them before. If indeed, do you think 8 million people read it? Well, collector's item. Possibly. But I did think that that scene dragged a little bit. I thought it was a bit repetitive. I did like the Wolverine's line of dialogue. Saying they all have their own responsibilities now. Was that Claremont saying that every X-Men has their own title now? Yeah, pretty much. Bit of self-reflexive wit mm-hmm. going on in the script. Uh, Gambit's a character I know very little about. I understand he's very popular, but I found his speech patterns very irritating. I did like the relationship between Rogue and Magneto. Yeah. There seems to, I don't know what it is between those, because I wasn't a regular reader of X-Men at this point, but there seems to be a friendship or a level of respect between the two of them. Mm. I didn't know why. No, me neither. But the panel, though, where Magneto cries is a bit... I thought that was a bit too fast. Do you think? Yeah, to the person who's killed in front of him. Get it, it's kind of shocking, but Magneto doesn't seem bothered until he turns around and he's crying. And yet nowhere in the dialogue does it say that. It, the dialogue doesn't match the art in places. 
Yeah, I mean... Clermont's having to pull a lot of strings here to gut his storyline. He didn't want to tell this story. Yeah. He wanted to carry on his story arc for Magneto, which was kill Professor X and have Magneto complete his arc from bad guy to good guy. Yeah. And Magneto take over running the X-Men. And obviously Bob Harris didn't want to do that. Did he not go back to do that with... What would did he recently X-Men, X-Men Forever, Forever where it carried on after this issue? Yeah, and he kills Professor X, I think, and he kills Wolverine. So yeah. he kills Wolverine, but I don't know. Uh, I showed my wife, your mum, to clear it up, the shot of Psylocke hitting Magneto in the face where her legs are wide open like that. And uh, uh, your mum wondered if she shaves. So, that is quite a ridiculous costume just from a comfort point of view, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, at least she's wearing flat shoes <laughs> instead of high heels. It's to Clermont's credit that everybody gets something to do in this issue, especially in a cast this size. But this is quite clearly Magneto's story. The rest of the cast just kind of going through the motions. There's some nice moments, but it's pleasantly surprising to me to read an X-Men comic where I, A, recognise half the cast, and two, can understand what's going on, even when it's two decades old. I had no problem slipping straight into this and reading it, did you? No. It wasn't confusing, it was incredibly dense, but it wasn't confusing. And I actually thought that Magneto's closing speech was magnificent. Yeah. Most of which I quoted verbatim in the synopsis. I thought it was really good. I loved that bit at the end. you got to give your villain a good speech, yeah. is my thinking. Uh, Magneto's wrong though when he says only magistrates were slain in the attack on the hospital isn't there clearly an innocent nurse though when they blow up the hospital room is a nurse though yeah his argument being there only government officials and magistrates were in there so nobody important was killed well thanks Magneto for being the one that decides who's <laughs> important but no there's a nurse next to her bed mm. so they have just killed an innocent being for me this was night and day the clear difference between an issue written by an artist and an issue written by a writer albeit a writer being told what to write is this inaugural issue of a new X-Men title having not read X-Men since around the early 200s or so I was expecting to be thoroughly confused but Clermont makes it relatively easy to jump in and go forward the story is packed and very dense typical Clermont from this period and this took me an entire train journey home to read properly unlike Spider-Man number one which took five minutes Clermont was not writing a story he wanted to write here. He'd wanted to kill Professor X, as I just said, and move Magneto to centre stage, but Bob Harass wanted Magneto restored to villainy, and as such, the plot to this issue was dictated by him and Jim Lee. Clermont does a professional job with it. He still manages to imbue Magneto with a kind of nobility, and like all the best villains, such as Ra's al Ghul, the Raider not only understands Magneto's point, but also on some level agrees with him. It doesn't help matters that the X-Men attack Magneto without provocation, the Soviets attack Magneto without provocation, and Wolverine attacks Magneto without provocation and tries to gut him. Clermont may not have wanted to write the story, but he doesn't phone it in, giving Magneto ample reason to turn his back on humanity. Art-wise, this isn't as poster-friendly as Lee Field or McFarlane's work. Lee is still following a writer, rather than doing whatever he wants. His work is still the epitome of the 90s, with posed figures and implausible costumes, particularly on Rogue. But Lee can tell a story. It's plotted to all his strengths, as one might expect, 
There's no downtime for the heroes, no moments where they simply check out a movie or kick back for a beer. It's all outlandish action and costumed heroics, but that's what people wanted, and that's what Lee gives them. Whilst $4 for this back in 91 would probably have been a little bit steep, Mm. at least the reader wouldn't have felt short-changed or at least as short changes as with the other two comics. At least this was a meaty read. I mean, I was assuming those 8 million people actually read it. Sadly, there are no ads in this issue, but as if to emphasise Jim Lee's role, there are a number of posters, a villain's gallery, a shot of the original team, a Sports Illustrated thing, a coming soon tease, and some sketchbook stuff. What did you think of that? I liked it. I really liked it. I liked it so much, I went and read the other three. The other two, Sarah. Okay. I read X-Men 2 and 3. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I remember it going into forever, so I actually don't know where it actually went from that. Um, I only read X-Men 2 and 3, because that's all I have. Didn't you do the <coughs> reprint that had all three of them? All three, yeah. In, right. 1990, in 2009, sorry, they reprinted this and X-Men 2 and X-Men 3 in one comic. And that three-issue comic reprint only cost $1 more than the original price of this. Yeah. What, 20 years later? Hmm. So you should have just waited 20 years. <laughs> to, to read it, going in a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Lee's art continues to get more and more 90s, and what Nick Fury was in issue two is just laughable. But the story is a magnificent summation of everything the X-Men stand for. Magneto's all-out assault on the Earth is one of the few times a comic has not shied away from the true ramifications of what a supervillain of Magneto's stature could accomplish if he truly let loose. And whilst incredibly verbose, it's a compelling and action-packed way for Clermont to go out on. If Brian Singer had shown any interest in actually adapting comics into movies instead of making Wolverine films, this would be an excellent story for Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Unlike Uncanny, X-Men 3 does pay a fitting farewell to Clermont with an announcement ahead of time that this is his last issue and a final note that reads CNC 1976 to 1991 Finn. Uh, yeah, that was easily the best of the three, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Bar, bar none. Uh, an almost typically 90s collection that is pretty much Marvel Comics in microcosm and by extension Image Comics. Reading these, one of which I'd never read before, one of which I only vaguely recalled, none of which I've read since they came out, the satirical elements of something like Nightfall were even more readily apparent, showing that DC, whilst I'm sure they had their moments, didn't seem to be quite as ridiculous in following the trends of the time. Right, everybody, hope you enjoyed that. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we are looking to both companies, and the theme next week is Legacy and Replacement Heroes, when we will be covering Green Lantern issue 51, Flash issue 92, and Fantastic Four issue 348. We hope you will enjoy us. I just say that every single week, don't I? We hope you enjoyed that and that you will join us back next week. Feel free to feedback, particularly if you're an ardent Liffield fan and you are in some way offended, offended by, uh, by what we said. It was all in fun. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. If you wanna be my lover